1: Previously, on Murder on the Space Coast. I've never killed anybody. So you didn't kill Courtney? No. Courtney Cranston, absolutely not, no. Jeff is a pool, pool villain, yes. What kind of pills it, like Jeff? Oxycontins. You want to know how I know? I'm John A. Torres, and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast, Season 4, Where Justice Lies. So Jeff Abramowski, hooked on Oxycontin, is found guilty of bludgeoning his friend and drug supplier, 78-year-old Dick Crandall, to death. It only took the jury a few hours to reach their verdict, and Jeff was sentenced to life in prison. But let's back up just a bit. Before the jury is brought in to read their verdict, Jeff is waving to his daughter Jamie in the gallery. Jeff is feeling good, confident that the jury will find him not guilty and he'll go home, and this nightmare will be over. He's been in the Brevard County Jail now four years awaiting this moment, the moment of freedom, or so he thinks. He's sure this is it. So is his daughter, a high school student at the time, Jamie was ready with candies and snacks for her dad once he was acquitted. Having attended every day of the trial, Jamie was ready to celebrate with her father.
2: Because no matter what, from day one, he's been optimistic. And he was so excited. And he's like, you have to come. I'm coming home. Be ready to bring me home. So we sat through every single day of that. He would smile at us and wave at us. He just, he thought there was no way that these people would believe he did it because he didn't do it. And then we sat there waiting. And then they said, guilty. I fell on the floor, and I couldn't believe it. I, I just, I couldn't imagine they, that they would really, I, could, I just didn't understand how they could do that.
1: Guilty. The jury found Jeff guilty of murder. His knees buckled. His daughter wept. And Jeff was handcuffed and led away. That night was one of the few times Jamie had ever heard her father cry.
2: And I know he called me crying. He's never cried a day since he's been in there because he said, you know, that shows weakness. You can't cry in here. He called me crying. And he said, baby, how did they do this to me? How did did this happen? I can't believe it. And he was so devastated that They really thought he could do something like this and that they would take him from us because all he ever wanted was to just be home with us and where he was supposed to be. And they just ripped him away and we never, we never thought it would last this long.
1: All Jeff Abermasky wanted was to be with his family. And there was probably a time when that was true. But there was something he wanted more something he had allowed to tear his family apart, the pain-killing narcotic OxyContin. Known as hillbilly heroin because of its widespread abuse in the Appalachian Mountains and its popularity among the rural white population, OxyContin affects a user's nervous system the way heroin does. With heroin, dopamine floods the brain, causing a feeling of intense pleasure and euphoria. It also alleviates any physical pain the user may have been experiencing. There is a calmness and sometimes a bit of disorientation. Jeff's Oxycontin habit had become so bad that there was even a time when Jamie wanted him out of the house, at least until he cleaned himself up. And we'll get to all of that, but we're going to keep working this episode moving back in time. So before Jeff is found guilty of murder for a crime he insists he did not do, And before he calls his daughter Jamie from jail and breaks down, asking how could they do this to him, there was the moment when Jeff's family first learned he was facing such a serious charge. Here is Jeff's ex-wife Connie 16 years later, along with their daughter Jamie, recalling how they learned the news. And so when they charged him with murder, how did you find out? Did, did like, he call you from the jail yeah. or something? No, he, or?
3: Couldn't, he never contacted. I've never, never spoken from to from him to since. I've never spoken to anyone. He's never called. It had to be in the paper. I think it was
2: Lisa, your friend, called and told us that he was on the front page. And that might have got been. Got I paper. think it was the newspaper.
3: Nobody ever spoke to me.
2: We had a friend of ours call because we had no idea. We just hadn't heard from him and we figured, you know, maybe he was just, you know, using and we didn't know where he was and then we had a friend call us because it was on the floor, the website or the the paper and they said, your dad, Jeff's on on the paper. He killed somebody. And (laughs) my mom said, there's no way, you know, because even my mom and dad didn't have the greatest relationship. I mean, but even she to this day, if you ask her, will say there's no way Jeff would not have done that and nobody ever asked her, even during his trials asked her to come on and they they were divorced. I mean, she could have easily said anything, but she knows in her heart that he would that is not him.
1: By the time Jeff was charged with murder, his wife Connie had already had enough and started divorce proceedings. It had been a long time coming. The last time she saw Jeff was not long after he was charged. That was when she took the kids to the county jail to see their dad. For Connie, that one visit was enough. The experience was traumatizing to her and the children.
3: I took him one time to see him. And that was in Sharps, when you're on the TV, so they didn't actually get to see him. Yeah. And <laughs> as soon as Jesse saw him, he hit the wall and hit the floor. So at that point, I said, never again. I will never take him again. He backed up and hit the wall and slid crying. Oh, oh, crying. And fell down on the floor and just sat there crying the whole time. He wouldn't get up. He wouldn't move. That was so dramatic.
1: How had it come to this? How had Jeff's life spiraled this far down? Everything started when Jeff's Oxycontin use became impossible to control.
2: I mean he would be passed out on the floor he would pass out going to the bathroom I mean he was on things that he couldn't even function I mean he would come home and he'd be passed out looking for things that he lost and uh, my mom we got sick of it we all got sick of it because it was embarrassing if I brought friends home and he's passed out in front of the air conditioner because he thought he lost something and so finally we all wanted him to go we just wanted him to be taught a lesson basically that he needed to stop and we needed him to get help but by that point it was just it was so bad I mean nobody would help him and back then it was so big the pain mills and the pills mills that the doctors wanted him he was my mom actually went to one of the doctors and said please he has a family he's abusing these you need to stop and the doctor said he's paying us cash every time he comes in here I'm not going to say no to him
1: think about that for a second that's how desperate Jeff's wife was. She pleaded with doctors and pharmacists to stop giving her husband the pain medication he'd become addicted to. Please, she asked, don't sell him anything. They didn't listen. Jamie told me that it got to a point where she was afraid of bringing home friends from school because he'd be asleep with his, with his, with his face in the food or- Yep, or just on the-
3: passed out somewhere, yeah. in the car on the floor, anywhere.
1: And so did you have talks with him about it? I mean, you all say the
3: time. I went to all the pharmacies.
1: <sighs> you did? Yeah. And what'd you say?
3: I told him he was a drug addict. I printed a piece of paper up. I said he's a drug addict. Don't sell him anything. Don't give anything. They tell me it's not my problem. If, a, if these pharmacies give him pills, they're going to give him, if they get a prescription, they're going to give them to him. I went to Heshmar Hetty, which was the head of the Brevard County Department. He said the same thing. Too bad. He does Didn't not care. need to be in that position. Didn't wow. care. Didn't care at all. And, so, and that was more than once.
1: To understand how and why Jeffrey Charles Abramowski fell so low, we have to go way back. And so I went to go and see him in prison to learn what I could about the man. But first, just a quick funny story. I took my producer, Rob Landers, with me and let's just say he had already had his reservations about walking into a maximum security prison. I assured him that in all of my trips to prisons for interviews, great care was taken to keep the inmates separated from me, and that I rarely even saw any prisoners at all other than the person I was there to interview. Well, let's put it this way. I don't think Rob will ever believe another word I say. First, he and I were led through the, the yard while hundreds of inmates were out there. Then we were led into a building where the interview would take place. It was kind of in a small conference room behind the prison medical clinic. We opened up the doors and about a hundred sick and cranky inmates immediately turned toward us, no doubt wondering who we were and what we were doing. Needless to say, Rob was a little bit traumatized by the whole experience. Anyway, we are finally led down a hallway and Jeff is waiting for us, wearing his gray prison uniform and holding a folder. He's put on some weight since I'd interviewed him last in 2016, and he looks better. He smiles nervously and thanks us for coming before we are directed into a small conference room where Rob sets up the cameras and I help with the microphones. I sit across from Jeff and to his right. We start talking and he's much more subdued than last time. So... Back to his story and the reasons why things turned out the way they did. Nobody ever says I want to be a pillhead when I grow up, right? Well, Jeff didn't either. Jeff, you grew up in Ohio? Wisconsin. Wisconsin. What was your childhood like?
0: Well, I had a father that drove 18-wheelers his whole life. And he sat there and was gone most of my life. So I really didn't have a father figure. My mother was abusive physically she resented my father's absence, so she basically took it out on the kids, and she was an unhappy woman. She wanted to raise horses, and so what had happened was she basically one day just up and left, and left the kids alone while my father was on the road, and she just packed up her stuff and left and, and moved in with another man, and then like several days later, my father came home off the road, and there was the children. Ate everything in the refrigerator. We ate all the cereal.
1: How old were you when this happened? Nine, ten. While he's telling me this, Jeff's eyes well up with tears. He's careful not to get too emotional. Maybe because he just can't let other inmates see him crying. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. It's got to be traumatic for a nine or ten year old kid. To it, it was, it was. Um, but the kids pulled together, and with
0: my dad, you know, being successful, we fought for us kids. We got the house and. Back then, it was unheard of that a person was able to you know, in, in, a, in a divorce custody case yeah. to get everything. And my dad paid my mom $1,000, and my dad got us and raised
1: us. Yeah. True, his dad raised the kids and took care of them. But in talking with Jeff, it doesn't sound like there was a whole lot of love and affection. In fact, when Jeff turned 18, it was either move out or join the service. How did you end up in the Coast Guard and why?
0: Well, my father was a very strict, <coughs> what they call it, a disciplinarian, or yeah. And and he sat there and, and he told us children growing up, he says, "the the state of Wisconsin says that I owe you uh, an education, and I owe you a place to live until you're 18 years old. And and either you graduate high school, or you sit there and uh, and, and and reach 18, whatever one it is. That's when." You go out the door. He says, "That's when I'm done raising my children." He says, "Cause I want to. I'm getting old. I want to take care of myself with stepmom, right?" So, I, I got my GED. You know, as a senior, I just decided I wanted to go to work, and I, I was learning the same thing every year. So, I went and took the test and passed. They wanted me to go to MATC College because I scored so high, but I told them no. And then, and all of a sudden, my dad said, "Look," he says, "It's moving day." Hmm. I says, "What do you mean it's moving day?" I said, "I got a high school." Day. He says. Remember what I told you? So he gave me uh, an option. He says, the Hotel Buick or to go ahead and, and go to the Coast Guard. And I says, well, you know what? I said, let me go look at it. And I got a ride on the, on the West Wind uh, Icebreaker and enjoyed seeing that. And, and I said, you know what? I might try this. And I enjoyed everything about it.
1: Yep, Hotel Buick. Sleeping in his car really didn't sound that great. Jeff chose the Coast Guard and put in six years on a 41-foot search-and-rescue ship, the U.S. CGC Black Claw. The ship stationed on Yerba Buena Island would regularly travel down the coast near Mexico and all the way up to Washington State and on the Columbia River as well. I have some of Jeff's childhood photos as well as Coast Guard photos, and he was bright-eyed, smiling, respectful, and impressive. I also have a few letters of commendation that were in his file. One in particular says that Jeff always had a positive attitude, was always smiling and willing to help. By the way, you can view these letters, as well as the photos of Jeff in the service, by going to MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com. Okay, we're going to take a very short break to introduce you to a couple of other USA Today network podcasts we're excited about. Then after the break, we learn how Jeff wound up in Florida. They were teens, locked away for life for murder. But now they're getting a second chance. Uncertain Terms, a new podcast from T.C. Palm, explains why judges are re-sentencing youthful offenders, why families are having to relive the painful murders, why some killers are being set free. Look for it on tcpalm.com or your favorite podcast app. A
2: dead district attorney... A dead barber. A drug-addicted judge. A businessman hiding, armed, and scared. One woman, one name, binds them all. Rainella. The fabric of her life is woven with tragedy and violence, politics and pain, and even now, suspense. Come meet her on Season 1 of Suspicion, available on just about every major podcast platform.
1: Okay, we're back. So while Jeff is in the Coast Guard, he gets a little advice on his future. It was in the Coast Guard that Jeff learned to work on boats as a mechanic. He met a reservist by the name of Jim Reynolds, who advised Jeff to move to Florida when he was done serving because of all the employment opportunities for boat mechanics. So Jeff did what his buddy suggested, and he wound up in Brevard County, the Space Coast. Some of the questions I'm going to ask are a little tough, so, you know, I sure. mean, there's no offense or anything, so sure. don't take it were you taking drugs during that time, or were you clean and sober? or no, I was clean and sober
0: coming out of service, absolutely. I drank a little bit.
1: Yeah. And then, um, how did you meet your wife?
0: I met Connie. I was out uh, just hanging out with a, three or four of my friends, and, and I went into this club. and I, I At the
1: wet spot, right? Was it at the wet spot? No, it was called Spanky's. Oh, Spanky's? Okay. because When I asked Jamie, she said that she thought that you met her mom at the wet spot. No. Wow.
0: At, to, you know, but
1: anyways, <laughs> So no. you've been at a, at a like club on like, Merritt Island called Spanky's? Right.
0: I, went, uh, I met her at Spanky's and <laughs> as soon as I seen her, I instantly fell in love.
1: As really? As, yeah,
0: I was dating somebody else. But as soon as I seen her, I told my friend, I said, that woman over there, I said, He goes, which one? I said, that one over there. And he says, yeah. I said, I'm going to marry her and have children. He goes, you're crazy. You don't even know her.
1: Jeff was laughing because the Wet Spot is a, it's a dive bar in South Brevard County. And well, let's just say it's called the Wet Spot for crying out loud. I asked Connie about it and she had to laugh too. How did you meet Jeff? She already told me it
3: was at a bar in a bar oh, yeah. <laughs> doesn't sound very nice in a bar in merritt island okay a hundred years ago
1: she told me it was at the wet spot that's really low down
3: that's very low yeah sorry <laughs> no it wasn't there i've never been there oh
2: was it spanky's or something spanky's
1: and so um how did he ask you out or how did he you know come on to
3: you oh wow we're talking 30 years ago. I don't know, we just met there. I think friends of mine knew him and we were playing pool. And it's, went from there, we went out. And he lived in Merritt Island, so I had to drive all the way down to Palm Bay where I live.
1: And so did you start dating pretty much right away? Or? Yes,
3: we started dating right away. I think back then I had a cruise or somewhere I was going a month into it. I and mean, he didn't want me to go, but I left anyway. <laughs> <laughs> And I come home and he was mowing my grass and taking care of my cats and everything else. I'm like, okay. He's a good guy. He was a nice person. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so what else attracted you to him at that time? You know, was it his looks or was it...
3: Back then it was looks because it was surfer type. Yeah. He did have long blonde hair then.
1: And so the rest, as they say, is history. Jeff and Connie had Jamie in 1988 and Jesse followed in 1991. They married on September 12, 1991, about five months after Jesse was born. Jeff was trying so hard to be the father he never had. He worked nights and odd hours so that he could be a stay-at-home dad, while Connie worked more traditional hours in medical offices. And according to Jamie, Jeff just might have been the most popular dad in their neighborhood.
2: My dad was an amazing dad. He did everything with us. He played with us. He took us to school, did homework with us. Everything that a dad should do, my dad did. Oh yeah, we fished a lot, living in Brevard County, so we were always at the river and beaches, and he would play baseball outside with the kids. We lived in an apartment in Palm Bay. He would play outside with all of us. We'd play baseball, we would kick the ball, we'd go to the park. He taught us how to swim, probably a lot of neighborhood kids how to swim as well. I mean he was just the guy who everybody loved him because he was so fun to be around.
1: Yeah, I mean he's very outgoing, right? Yes,
2: very outgoing. Never really sat down, always something, and he loved his kids. That was the main thing for him was his kids. He didn't care about anything else. As long as it was he was with us, that was the main thing for him.
1: Sounds idyllic. For Jeff it was really simple. The only way to erase the past was to carve out a new future. She said that she couldn't ask for a better dad. (laughs) <laughs> that was nice, I
0: appreciate that. I tried to do the best I can. What I did, John, is I, I did the complete opposite of what my parents did. And I and I knew, like you, you hear people sit there and they say, they go, oh my childhood was this, that and the other and that's the way I am. I, I, I didn't go that route. I, I thought we're gonna nip it in the bud now and I'm gonna stop all that. And so what I did is, is I just did the opposite of what I went through and it seemed to work.
1: Of course, all that changed. And that change can be traced back to one particular morning. A single fateful morning that was, as it turned out, stamped with doom for Jeff and his family. Jeff was working on cars, installing and repairing interiors, and he had a job that he had to get to. Like many families, the morning rush to make it to work on time and get the kids off to school was a challenge.
0: It was, it was getting late in the morning. I had a car to go do. I was doing interiors in cars again and, and Connie had to get to work and, and everybody was just running around the house and, and uh, Jamie was, I'll never forget it, Jamie was like with the brush, brushing her hair and she's taking forever and I said, Jamie, I said, you gotta hurry up. I said, I gotta go. I gotta still take you all the way to school and then go all the way over here. I said, I said let's go. So I finally got him in the car and I started to go down the road and... and
2: it was the, in the, 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 the fourth grade, I believe.
1: So you remember it then?
2: Yes, I remember it very well. What, what happened? We lived in Woodlake Apartments on Palm Bay Road, and we were leaving to take me and my brother to school. I was in the front seat, my brother was in the back seat, and we had just pulled out, basically. We were going west, and as we were driving, I was talking, and I hadn't even put my seatbelt on, because we were just chatting and
0: stuff. Light was green. Light was green and the other guys had the red, so I went right through the intersection. There was nobody there, and I'm driving like this, and the next thing I know, I get hit in the driver's door.
2: And this truck came across from Chili's side and smashed. We had a two-door little car smashed into his driver's side. Um, my dad had no seatbelt on. My brother, I don't remember if he had one or not, but he went forward, split his face open. I hit the dashboard, my dad and the whole broke.
0: car went, and it's going down the road. And I said, wow. I said, I just got killed in a car accident because yeah. I felt everything explode in my back and I couldn't breathe and I thought, wow, well, I'm fixing to die because it was a hard impact. And um, I got it over to the side and I and I, I couldn't get out my door because it was crushed. The seat was lifted up. So I jumped over to council. I didn't did my belt. I jumped over to council and I, I flipped open Jamie's door and there's blood everywhere. Jamie got cut across the mouth and, and it was just from the restraint and it was just blood everywhere. So I got her out and carried her to the, to the sidewalk and then I went around the other side of the car to get Jesse and his head was wedged in from the back with the pillar post in the back rest of my seat. So I flipped it up and he comes up and he's all cut open and there's blood everywhere coming out of him. Jeez. So I pulled him out and did, and did his belt and I pulled him out the window and I carried him down, and that's when the ambulance came and and they brought two ambulances and took the kids in the first one and then they come in and got me
2: and um, he was the one who pulled us all out of the car, even with broken ribs off of his back and I remember people coming to help us. And he told them, like, don't touch me. Just get my kids in the ambulance. Worry about my kids. Get me last, even though he had the most severe injuries. He didn't care. He said, I'm fine. Just leave me there. Like, leave me here and take them. So they put me and my brother in the ambulance. And we didn't see him later until we got to the hospital. But they took him last because he just, he wouldn't leave. He didn't want to be taken care of until he knew that we were going to be okay.
1: Jamie uh, was crying here, too, because she said that you um, you were really, really hurt. And she said that you insisted on them taking the children first right. before you. Why'd you do that? Because I love them. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, that's what any dad would do who loves his kids, right? A
0: real dad. A solid dad. Yeah, if you yeah. love your children... They're going to go first.
1: And he had some pretty bad injuries.
2: Yeah, he had multiple ribs broken off of his back, and that's where the pain pill addiction started.
0: They started me out on uh, lower tabs, like uh, 750s and into the 10s, and then, and then eventually I started because I had so much damage done in there. It, just, it's, it still bothers me today, and it's been years ago. But uh, they had me on. Eventually I got to the oxies and then, and then pretty soon it was just it escalated.
1: That car accident, that kind of changed everything in the life of Jeffrey Charles Abramowski, right? Sure did. Was that the morning that sealed Jeff's fate? Did the dark cloud of doom, the one that descended upon his life that fateful morning of the car accident, attach itself permanently? It certainly seemed to. Jeff's addiction grew so bad. He recognized it was so bad that he even sought help at the methadone clinic, but relapsed shortly thereafter. The Oxies had a hold on him and were not letting him go. He was unable to find steady employment. His marriage was on a one-way collision course with divorce. He'd crashed his truck and been slapped with a DUI. He was living on a friend's couch. He'd gone from a family man to a guy sleeping on a couch at someone's house, having to adhere to strict rules about lights out and curfews. There were humiliations. But it would get worse, as you heard in the last episode. Nine years after Jeff nearly lost his life in a car accident on Palm Bay Road, Jeff's friend and drug supplier, Dick Crandall, was found bludgeoned to death inside his home at Mobile Land-by-the-Sea Trailer Park. Investigators found a trace amount of Jeff's DNA under one of Dick's fingernails. And prosecutor Rob Parker said that sealed the deal. But when I took it all in... Uh, the defendant claiming that he had never been scratched by the defendant when clearly it appeared that his DNA was under the fingernails. It could only have occurred that it happened, or that would be my presumption. Uh, I just felt like that was the perpetrator with the DNA and that specific uh, tag in the marker. I would have said this case, under these circumstances certainly creates a greater uh, problem. cause that this guy is our perpetrator. But was that trace amount of DNA as important as the prosecutor suggested it was? Was that really the state's smoking gun? People leave DNA everywhere, and finding someone's DNA somewhere isn't always that significant. We know that now. But then? Also, remember... Police found more evidence than just a trace of Jeff's DNA under Dick's fingernails. They found someone else's hair in the dead man's hand, and someone else's blood in his sink. Next time on Murder on the Space Coast, where justice lies.
2: reasons for people's DNA to, to be someplace, and that's what I think a lot of juries aren't understanding and perhaps we're not doing a good job educating the juries or their judges
0: the DNA I had to beg him to test the DNA recovered from the victim's fingernails yeah. it took me forever but I finally got him to get it and it came back it only matched me two out of thirteen loci I thought this is it. I'm finally going to prove my yeah. innocence. It didn't even come close to helping me.
1: That's all for now. Remember, if you enjoy investigative journalism like this, please help support us by subscribing to Florida Today by going to murderonthespacecoast.com. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J O H N A L B E R T O R R E S. And follow the podcast at 321-MURDER. For more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers. And the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network.